which I learned at Lopage. How much does the food we eat affect our mental health? In her new book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being, Washington Post food journalist Mary Beth Albright draws on the latest scientific research to explain the connections between food and mood. It's published by Country Man Press, an imprint of W.W. Norton, and brings Mary Beth Albright to our show now. Welcome. Hey, Leonard. How are you today? Okay. Well, you begin your book by pointing out that food is pleasurable and that our brain activity can be mapped and studied. Is it different when we eat alone or with other people? Well, I'll go ahead and answer the question because um, you, the first thing you bring up is food pleasure. And I love that that's the first thing you brought up because it's the entire first chapter of the book. Um, it, yeah. It's all about food pleasure because we forget that food pleasure is a form of nourishment, is a type of nourishment that food gives us. It's not just about nutrients. It's not just about um, fiber, although those things are important. I wanted to make sure that I, when I came to the science about how food and mood are inextricably entwined, I wanted to come at it with the mind of a food writer because, um, and a person who loves food, because I think that that's how all of us at first come to food. And then we're also concerned about the nutrients and that kind of thing. So yeah, there's, there's a, there's a lot going on in our brains with uh, food pleasure. Is there something specific that you wanted to know about? Well, you write about the time you drank wine and kale juice inside an fMRI machine. What do you learn from that? Yeah, you know, it's not the usual reason that people go into fMRIs, right? Um, and it's funny because if you know anything about uh, functional MRIs, it shows the activity that's happening in your brain while you're doing something. Now, people are thinking about MR, FMR, or, or MRIs. Generally, they're like those big tubes and you have to lie down and it's really noisy and that kind of thing. But there are labs, there are food labs in this country that um, have this set up so that uh, the the liquid will drip into your mouth while it's um, while it's looking at what's happening in your brain. And what mm. we what what this this researcher who is doing this is Dr. Eric Stice out of Stanford University, um, and he usually does research with milkshakes. And I showed up at his doorstep with some wine and some kale juice as well. Um, and so he let me into his fMRI, and we looked at like the different pleasure centers that light up when you drink different things or eat different things. And as expected, um, I think we we know this anecdotally, but science confirmed that the more we eat a certain food, the less pleasure we get from it, the more we need to be um, fulfilled and filled. Uh, and so um, there's a lot of research going on around that. You define emotional eating based on the science. What's emotional eating? Well, it's interesting because when I started doing this research, uh, it was 15 years ago. I was at the Surgeon General's office and um, working for C. Everett Coop. Well, I worked for C. Everett Coop prior to that. Now, after he Mm. um, after Dr. Coop retired, I worked for him for years and then I worked to, went to work at the current Surgeon General's office um, in public health. And there was a um, there was a, uh, a journal article that crossed my desk that showed that if you eat 
um, omega-3 fatty acids that it reduced the incidence of, dep- of aggression in men. And that was 15 years ago. And the research has really just exploded from there because the the that was the first time 15 years ago that I'd seen an article in a peer-reviewed journal um, that was about how the food, how food and mood affect each other. And in the past 15 years, the research has really exploded and shown that having an eating pattern that we often think of as a healthy eating pattern, right? Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, fatty fish, healthy oils, actually also can reduce the incidence of depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms. And it's really groundbreaking research. So you, that's emotional eating, right? Uh, You interpret complex studies from the new field of nutritional psychology. What's nutritional psychology? Yeah, and to get back to the emotional eating question, I'm sorry I didn't answer that question. Um, No, please. Yeah, no, what the science shows is that food and emotions are entwined, and we can either get to know this connection and get to know how to use it um, and use our biology in our favor, or we can negatively label things emotional eating and say, oh, I don't want to do that anymore and deny that we do it. But the truth is that all eating is emotional eating because our emotions are processed by our nervous system. They tell us, um, our emotions tell us how we feel about things that are going on outside of us, um, outside of our of our bodies. And the food, when we eat anything, there are biological reactions that happen in our body. It could be a carrot stick. It could be a piece of cake, but there are biological reactions that affect our emotions. And that food we eat actually creates the neurotransmitters and the hormones that create our emotions. And so all eating is emotional eating. And that's why I really wanted to redefine that so that term so that we can take that back for those of us who really love food and who might feel like we have intense emotions, we can take that back. We can reclaim that phrase and use it um, to our advantage by getting to know our biology. Does it matter whether we're eating with another person or a couple of people or a lot of people? Well, shockingly, yes. It's so interesting. Um, it's something in the book even that though I call- the nutrients are the same in all the cases. Yes, the nutrients are always the same. There's nothing hoo-hoo going on, right? Um, But in Eat and Flourish, in my new book, I get into what I call the feast paradox. And in America, I'll tell you what that is. In America, we often associate eating less with having better health, right? We're all trying Mm -hmm. to eat less. We're all trying to, you know, eat less food. But the feast paradox is that people who eat consistently with other people, eat more, but they enjoy better health outcomes. And we don't know what the mechanism is for that, but there's research globally that shows this in America, in England, in Australia, in in England, actually, in the United Kingdom, they have a program called the Big Lunch, which is based in science that, that encourages people to eat with their next door neighbors, because we find that people who have those strong relationships um, have better health outcomes and live longer. And so one big way to commune with other people is over food. And anytime we eat anything, uh, there's dopamine released in our bodies, which can encourage us to bond with other people. So that's right. It, the nutrients are the same. I'm not, th- there's no magic here. And it's all just about 
you know, the power of the food system that we have right now, the system is really perfect. We're just not using it. We're, we're going to things that are not as, as nourishing as the whole foods are. What about just our, our biology? Don't our bodies, uh, don't some people's bodies deal with nutrients differently than others? 100% yes. And every body is different. And, you know, obviously talk to your doctor about this. What I did in this book is combined research from all different um, disciplines, from neuroscience and from biology and from um, nutrition science to figure out what that, whether this food mood connection exists. And it's resoundingly yes. Um, but we need to, we, we need to use it. We need to eat actual food, real food and not just the ultra high processed foods um, that can really damage a body through inflammation. But your question about um, the about how differently people react to different foods, whether it be the nutrients or whether food allergies or anything like that. Um, I, I need to mention here what's something that is called the gut microbiome. And the gut microbiome is the collection of trillions of microorganisms, and that's bacteria, that's viruses, that's fungi that live in your digestive tract between your mouth all the way down to the other end. And there are trillions of them living in there. And, and they're each one of those trillions is its own unique being. It's its own unique microorganism. Those microorgan and everybody's gut microbiome is like a fingerprint. Everyone's is a little bit different, um, but the gut microbiome really influences a lot of how we behave, mm-hmm. our social behavior, our sleep patterns. Um, you know, there was a there all are all affected by the gut microbiome. In addition to how we metabolize foods or how we metabolize medications, there's some evidence that the effectiveness of medications could be dependent upon. Um, what what microbes you have in, in your own particular gut microbiome. I'm speaking with Mary Beth Albright about her book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You say that research has linked changes in the gut microbiome and the enteric nervous system with depression, as well as associating omega-3 fatty acids with levels of aggression and inflammation with emotional stability. Can you please explain that? Yeah, that's a mouthful, right? Um, there are two yeah. separate things here. We're going to talk about the gut, the gut microbiome separate from inflammation. Um, as I mentioned, the gut microbiome influences a lot of who we are um, by, you know, the, the, these these little microbes. You can think of them like workers, right? These are little workers that exist all the way in your digestive tract. And The food we eat are the raw materials that the workers use in the factory to create substances. So those substances could be neurotransmitters like serotonin. They could be hormones like dopamine. And so um, we have these we have these microorganisms that's that seriously affect um, how we feel and how we show up in the world. And I'll give you an example of that is that. We we all hear a lot around Thanksgiving about tryptophan, right? That tryptophan mm. is the is the compound in turkey that makes people sleepy, um, and there have been a lot of studies showing that 
it, that tryptophan can actually be converted, uh, can help convert serotonin. And so serotonin being what people call the quote unquote feel good neurotransmitter, right? Um, and so, so that's great that tryptophan can help with serotonin. But the thing is, is that if you have certain gut microbes, it could actually turn tryptophan into a different compound that can cause inflammation. So you really need to pay attention to the health of your gut microbiome. And if you're wondering, well, how do I do that? There are two ways. Mm -hmm. One is through the food you eat. Uh, well, they're both through the food you eat, but one is through um, getting fermented foods like yogurt, um, like sauerkraut, like kimchi, like kefir, which is basically drinkable yogurt. Um, all of those foods have live living microorganisms in there. And if they're if they're refrigerated and they're fermented, you'll see that there are living microorganisms. When you eat those microorganisms, they don't take up residence in your gut microbiome, but they help the workers along the way. It's like bringing in really, really skilled workers for, for a few hours into a really well-performing factory. And then you're just gonna get some better stuff out of that. And then um, the other, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yes, please. No, no. Well, along those lines, don't certain foods help reduce the inflammation that can harm mental health? Yes, that's correct. So, um, and I, I talk about Is in that the book. Part I talk of what about we're discussing here. No, no, no. So I talk about it's all related. Like this is the thing: is that it's funny because we 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 tend to talk about the body as a separate sort of like a container for parts and the body is a system. So the gut microbiome influences the inflammation. The inflammation influences the gut microbiome. So it's both impossible to separate them from each other because it's a system. And it's also impossible to talk about it without talking about them separately because it's so much information. So um, the, the, for the gut microbiome, I'll just finish that, which is the other thing um, that you can do is feed your gut microbiome by eating fiber. Um, the, the microbes um, eat as I said, they're each a living organism with their own genes and carrying their own their own stuff. And they're just all of them, again, three trillion of them living inside of you. Um, and so when you when you eat fiber, um, you are feeding those those microbes. If you don't get enough fiber in your diet, the microbes can start eating because they have to eat something. They're hungry. So they they start eating the lining of your stomach. And of your, they sometimes your stomach, sometimes your colon, but they eat like this sort of mucusy lining, um, which can lead to leaky gut problems because then your lining isn't as isn't as strong, and then um, the the toxins that are in your stomach can leak out into your blood. That can cause inflammation, and I'm happy to talk more about how inflammation then can cause um, can cause emotional well being problems. Well, you provide a four-week plan for building a diverse microbiome, reducing inflammation, and boosting nutrient intake and uh, and pleasure, which includes eating fermented food, legumes, and lots of produce, as well as, and is this really important, eating with another person at least once per day? 
Yes, absolutely. Because we have those studies that show that if you're eating some anything, your body is producing dopamine, that dopamine will help with bonding. And if you're sitting with another person, you're going to have it's it's more, it's likelier that you are going to have um, a a stronger bond if you have those hormones in your body that allow you to bond somebody with somebody and eating does that. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because that's when, when we were, you know, millennia ago, before, even before agriculture, I mean, we really, we really survived by eating in groups and eating around campfires um, and working together. And so we've gotten away from that. And we've, we, we live currently in a world of, you know, meals for one meals in 30 seconds in the microwave, that kind of thing. And it's, and it's a result of the way that we live today. Um, but it's a mismatch with our evolution and with, with our evolutionary background. Um, we have a lot of evolutionary, uh, devices in our bodies that keep us, um, from, that keep us from starving, that make sure that we get enough food and not, not any, there, there, there are no mechanisms in the body to make sure that we stop eating. Um, it, so it, I mean, that we, that we don't, that we stay away from food. You don't have mechanisms like that. And so you really need to, um, to, to pay attention to the evolutionary mismatch between now and, you know, millennia ago. You say it was critical to you that people could implement what you're talking about in real life without it sounding like a diet. When you we say it's a diet, then uh, that turns people off? I think so. Uh, just from anecdotally, again, uh, from our from my experience in the world, I do think that diets turn people off, and it is. I don't. You know, it's it's very. All of the science shows us that it's very difficult to stay on a rigid um, diet plan. Uh, it's not impossible, but for for most people, as we can see, a lot of people who have tried to lose weight or whatever, most people have found it um, difficult, if not impossible, to stay perfect on a diet. Um, I also was concerned about, you know, there's a lot of weight stigma in this world. And there's a lot of um, information that we have now about just how damaging weight stigma can be for people for the, for their emotional well-being. So regardless of, you know, what what you think about um the the biological bases of obesity or having extra weight or whatever, um have, having that feeling that you're not enough or having that feeling that today you're not good enough but tomorrow you will be that's not good for your emotional well-being. So that's one of the reasons I really tried to stay away from the weight discussion because uh, it, it's just, it's not helpful at all. It's not that weight doesn't have anything to do with it because weight can affect inflammation. And then that inflammation can affect um, your emotional well-being, but it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to focus on it because that's not the evidence that we have. A listener writes in to ask about the impact of sugar and antibiotics. Yeah, so I'll take those one at a time. Sugar is um, can really cause a lot of inflammation in the body. Um, and it's not, you know, I talked about how the, um, the Mediterranean diet has a lot of evidence behind it. The Mediterranean diet doesn't include 
no sugar. I mean, it, it includes like occasional occasional desserts or even a dessert a day. <laughs> um, but but if you have an if you have a bunch of refined sugar as part of your overall eating pattern, if you're eating a fair amount of refined sugar every day that can cause inflammation in your body. And let me explain a little bit more about inflammation because um, you know we, inflammation is just your immune system at work. Think about it this way. You cut your finger and the finger gets swollen and red and it gets a little warm. That's your immune system at work because um, your body is sensing that something's wrong and it's going to help it. Now, our bodies tend to react to ultra high processed foods, including those with a lot of refined sugar in as a threat to our system. Um, so when we eat those foods as a part of our dietary pattern, our bodies tend to become inflamed. Now, the, the thing about inflammation and emotional well-being is that it was thought until about 20 years ago that um, all of the toxins that are floating around in our blood uh, could not reach the brain. Be, and the brain was completely protected by something called the blood-brain barrier. What we now know, this is pretty recent, is that the barrier is not uh, impenetrable. It's semi-permeable. So those really tiny inflammatory compounds that float around in our blood, when there's inflammation anywhere in our body for any reason, can get through to your brain and wreak havoc with your emotional well-being. So if you stay away from sugar, it is less likely that you're going to have that kind of inflammatory response. And remind me what the other food was. But, but we wait, we are going to stay away from sugar completely or just cut down on it? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, the, all of the science shows at, it points toward an overall eating pattern, dietary eating pattern. So you can, you're, when you, when your body as a system has a, a regular influx of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and all those kinds of things that I was talking about, the system can handle some sugar, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, for most people, I mean, talk to your doctor and I'm talking here about people who don't have specific food allergies, of course, but, um, but that the, the, the inflammation that sugar that refined sugar, and I'm talking about, you know, white cane sugar or sugars, corn syrup, sugars that are in um, ultra high processed foods that we don't, you know, we don't use a lot of in regular life, but they're, they're all over the place and packaged foods. So does it Those matter whether it's processed sugar or maple syrup? So th those are two different things. So uh, by processed sugar, I assume you mean white sugar. And um, by maple syrup, you know, natural, real maple syrup, not the kind of stuff that you get. There are a lot of stuff that you get at the grocery store. If you look at the label, it's not maple syrup. It's flavored corn syrup. And that is the vast majority of what you buy at um, the grocery store. So if you read the label and it says real maple syrup, then you're getting that sugar. You're getting, you're still getting sugar, but you're getting it with a bunch of other nutrients that are inherent in maple syrup. And people tend to, there, there's a lot of brain research that shows that people tend to be able to control themselves less with refined sugar, white sugar or corn syrup or that kind of thing than with something like maple syrup. That when you refine sugar, there's a, there's a, there's a breakdown in the system between the stomach and the brain there you know there's 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 messages being sent between the gut and the brain constantly and the gut will tell the brain when it's had enough sugar but if you're having refined sugar those messages appear to be blocked more than if you have something like maple syrup 
the other thing the uh, listener wondered about was antibiotics and their impact. Yes, and and that is huge. Um, so having antibiotics is like a forest fire in your gut micro microbiome. If you take oral antibiotics, it, you know the the antibiotics. The point of them is to kill every microbe in its way, and you can't pick you know, kill the bad microbes mm -hmm. and just save the good ones. You can't do that. It's like a forest fire. And so if you, and I'm not anti-antibiotics, I mean, yay, antibiotics are, you know, life-saving and crucial um, in some situations, but they are overused in today's food supply system. And so if you are on an oral antibiotic, um, you need to pay attention to repopulating your gut microbiome with those foods I was talking about, like yogurt, like fermented foods, and eating fiber. And the other thing is to, is to really watch out for antibiotics in other places in the food system, particularly in meat, when you have meat that is raised in very small, tight conditions, which you know most most farms, um, most commercial farms are are like that. You need to use antibiotics to keep the animals healthy. But then those antibiotics mm. can get into the meat, and then you're getting antibiotics by eating by eating large scale raised meat without even meaning to, and sometimes without even knowing it. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm going to be around my vegetables. I'm going to chop down my vegetables. I love you most of all, my favorite vegetable. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Mary Beth Albright. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. To do that, just call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org during today's show. And we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Oakland at large. And we thank you very much. And return now to Mary Beth Albright. Her book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being, is published by Countryman Press. She's a writer, editor, executive producer at The Washington Post. She was a project director and subject matter expert for the U.S. Surgeon General and appeared on Food Network uh, as well. Now, uh, let, let's talk about uh, some of the, uh, the research that you describe here. What's the nature of Felice Jacka's work? Didn't she see evidence that people's diets were related to their experience of and risk for depression and anxiety? Yes. Well, that that study, um, Felice Jacka is in Australia, and she actually did the first randomized controlled study, dietary study, that showed that the Mediterranean diet by itself could reduce depression and anxiety symptoms um, more than talk therapy alone. And, you know, when I wrote this book, I really 
one of my biggest concerns was that people would say, oh, okay, well, now I just need to eat this way and I'll be fine. And the message here is never to stop going to see your therapist. Um, the message is not stop taking your medication, but it is that this, that food is a, is a tool in the toolbox um, that can really help. And that's what Felice Jacka's uh research showed. And then um, that was in Australia. And then all the way on the other side of the world. Wait, wait, I want to continue with her. Just oh, yeah, no, longer. please go ahead. Yeah. She wrote, as you point out, that Western style diets that are high in sugar and unhealthful fats, low in nutrients, high in ultra processed foods lead to depression, but and anxiety as well. But most notably in women, more than in men. It's not that it's more than in men, it's because we don't have that we don't have the large scale studies that we would need to be able to say that women are more sensitive to these changes in their food supply than men are. Um, what we can say is that we know that that what you eat matters. Um, so, you know, the dietary dietary studies are so difficult to do because short of putting a webcam on someone's forehead and recording everything they eat all day, every day, it's very difficult to get the kind of control that you need for science. And that's why it's hard to get people to do long, long-term dietary studies, because as maybe you've experienced, I've certain, certainly experienced, when you are told that you can only eat a certain way and you can't have this food or that food, um, that doesn't always last very long. And so the, the, the study, dietary studies that have the kind of, um, the kind of, the, the kind of review of what people are eating and when can get very expensive. For example, there was an NIH study um, that had people, two groups of people live at NIH for an entire month so that they could make sure of what those people were eating. Um, there's not a lot of people who have the funding to do that. So um, we don't we don't know a lot about the differences between men and women, except for when we do very targeted studies on that. Otherwise, you need to just, you know, take um, take take the people who are willing to go uh, to do your study. How do our brains adapt to the pleasure we feel after we eat ultra-processed foods. Do you mean that our brains require increasing amounts of stimulation to achieve the same level of pleasure? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it almost acts like a tolerance. I mentioned earlier Dr. Eric Stice and his research at Stanford, and that's what it shows is that we really, once we, once we get used to eating a food, I'll back up a second. Let's say you let's say there's ice cream. You love ice cream, right? And um it it's not surprising because ice cream has a sort of fat, sugar, sometimes salt balance that can really make mm -hmm. our our pleasure systems go crazy, right? Cuz it's the Isn't same the milk pleasure. Isn't it good for us? Oh, oh yeah, sure. I'm just saying that when you combine fat and sugar and salt, it 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 can really um it can really cause our, our pleasure circuitry to not overload, but get flooded with pleasure. Now, there are other times, it's the same pleasure circuitry that is used for everything. Same pleasure circuitry with sex, 
same pleasure circuitry with um, in the brain, the same pleasure circuitry with uh, good music, listening to good music. When you see the same circuitry lighting up in the brain. So we know that it's all going through the same way. Um, but you don't you, you when you when you enjoy something that is one of these foods over and over and over again, mm. you build what is essentially a tolerance to it. So every time you eat it, your brain gets a little less pleasure and a little less pleasure, which is why, you know, one of the one of the biggest tips in the book is about diversity, um, diversity of your diet, no matter what you're eating, because then um, you're le- you're not only learning to enjoy new foods, but it's also um, that your brain isn't getting used to any one specific thing. There's a there's an idea that is called Hebb's postulate that is the neurons that wire together fire together, and that's just that's just a fancy way to say neuroplasticity, which is that our brains are co- constantly learning. The neurons in our brains are constantly learning how to communicate with ourselves with with each other. And you mentioned earlier the enteric nervous system. When we hear about the nervous system, a lot of times we just think about the brain and the spinal cord. But the ner- there is something called the enteric nervous system that is in constant communication with the brain and spinal cord. But the enteric nervous system is the nervous system of the gut. The gut has its own nervous system that sends signals to the brain about what's in it, how it feels about it, that kind of thing. So this gut-brain axis, this loop that's constantly going on is highly influenced by food. Um, and now, I, I think we, we've all known that for a long time just from our own lives, but now we can see it through the science. Does everyone in the science community agree on uh, what the latest research is coming up with? No, does everyone in the science community agree on on anything, really? On anything. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the nature of science. That's what's so great about it is that science is is a process. It's a process of having an hypothesis, of testing it, and then having more information. It's not that science changes, it's that it evolves. And so, for example, I talked to um, uh, John Cryan, who I was talking about before, who is a neurobiologist in um, in Ireland. And he was saying, look, you know, people look at me sometimes as if I'm crazy because neurobiologists are only supposed to look from the neck up. We're not, we, we don't look at other parts of the body to see what's going on. But now that we're starting to see the body a lot more as a system, we're starting to, to, to see these things. And so, um, I think there there's no disagreement. I, I shouldn't say there's no disagreement. There's always disagreement. But there is general consensus that what you eat affects how you feel. The thing that is unknown is the mechanisms. And of course, it, it, by mechanism, I mean, um, how does it happen, right? Like, it's not just in science, you also need to figure out what why things happen, not just that they happen. And so- there are a lot of scientists who are looking for, you know, like the one great bacteria that's going to cure everything, right? That's going to make you feel well and it's going to make you lose weight and that kind of thing. And 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 are looking for that. But um, but the body is a system and the body, it, it's not about just one bacteria. And so and what about um, the mind? Does it matter whether we cook the food or are eating what someone else has cooked? Yeah, it does. The flavor is created in the brain. 
Uh, we always think about flavor on the tongue. That's taste. That's one of the senses that creates flavor, but all of our senses create flavor. The touch cre creates flavor because of the way that the food hits our tongue. Um, there's a, there in, in the United Kingdom, they uh, had Cadbury chocolate bars that they turned from um, circular pieces to square pieces and everyone, or excuse me, from square pieces to circular pieces. And everyone got angry because they said that the chocolate tasted sweeter and it doesn't, they don't, they don't change. They don't change the, the, they didn't change the recipe. They only changed the shape and round foods are perceived as sweeter by the brain. The brain perceives those foods as sweeter. For what reason? We don't know. We don't know what the mechanism is. A lot of people love sparkling water. Sparkling water is another branch of touch in the way that it, that it interacts with your tongue and changes the way that flavor is created. Same with smell, same with hearing. There's a study that um, people who are eating stale potato chips, you know, predictably didn't eat many of them because they were gross. But then when they piped in, when the researchers piped in sounds of crunching noises, people ate more of the chips and rated them as more delicious. Same chips. So it's it, it really matters everything, what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what you're smelling, what you're touching, what you're tasting. It all matters when it comes to flavor. And of course, the biggest way that you can engage your senses is by starting to cook. My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Mary Beth Albright. Her book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You devote a number of pages to the word hanger, which was added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 2018. What does it describe? So hanger is a combination of the words hunger and anger. And it's mm. it's it's sort of rose to um to to pop in a pop culture in the 2010s um about you know people who feel hungry often have a sensation of feeling anger with that, uh feeling discomfort, emotional discomfort. And it turns out that hanger is a real thing. And the way that it works, one of the ways that it works, it's, it's likely multiple ways, but one of the ways is um, that the, there are neurons in our brains called AGRP neurons that are called by the researchers hangry neurons. Like that's what they call them around the labs. And it's because when these neurons are, when you're hungry, these neurons are activated and those neurons send signals of hunger which makes sense because, you know, you don't have enough food, but it also sends signals of anger. And evolutionarily, there's no reason that that had to happen, except for they believe the idea that evolutionarily millennia ago, it wasn't enough for humans to feel a hunger pang to let them know if you don't have something, just eat soon, you're going to starve to death. Right. So. Mm nature, our evolution, had anger come along with it because that angry feeling gives us the adrenaline, gives us the cortisol that we can use to go out and find food. Now, in a world where we live in now, where 
you know, it feels sometimes like everybody's angry. And whenever you're hungry, you mm -hmm. can go to any corner store, go to go to a bodega and pick something up that, you know, might not be the best for your long term health. Hunger can be a real problem. And so it's important to know that because that's just another way that your food and emotions are entwined. Politics comes into everything. Uh, is uh, hangry neurons a reason some people don't like to be on diets? I, you know, I don't know. I would would I would assume and guess yes that that is part of it um, because there and and that's what I mean by you know when I say focusing on weight isn't really helpful when you're talking about emotional well being. That's what I'm talking about is that if you're focused only on weight or solely on weight or or even specifically on weight, you're you're probably not going to get enough food at some point. And that is going to mess with your emotional well-being. So not only are you going to have that that hanger come into you know combat with your mental health, um, you're also going to be setting yourself up for thinking that you're only good enough if you're a certain weight. And that is absolutely not true. You describe a study in which students wore sensory deprivation gear and tried to track the scent of chocolate from one point to another. What was the, the reasoning behind that study? Well, you know, some studies, it's just like stuff. people, people just do. I mean, I, I, there is a reason behind it, but I also think sometimes these researchers are just like, oh, that sounds interesting. Let's try that out. Um, it was to show that human sense of smell was, it, it, that human sense of smell could track that smell of chocolate and could track that smell of chocolate even better than it could track something that was less caloric than chocolate. And here's why that matters because we eat what we smell and we, and our brains have this, uh, excuse me, our guts have this sense, this, this sensory, this gut sense that it sends to our brains when we've had enough nourishment, our bodies are, are evolutionarily designed to go after food that is more caloric that has higher calories because that's, you know, again, we have all these systems in our bodies that make sure that we get enough food, but very few, if any, to make sure that we stop eating. Um, and so they wanted to show that the human sense of smell was important, was powerful and important to what people actually wind up eating. Um, and, uh, and, and they certainly did. There was, a, there was another study done by the same group that showed that students who were walking around um, a city block had greater recall memory for where the high caloric foods were than recall memory for, for stores that had lower calorie calorie foods. It's just this thing in our brain. Our brains are obsessed with getting enough food. And so understanding that and being able to work with that is critical. We don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to, uh, to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, don't the ups and downs of our lives often affect what we choose to eat? Does it matter if we're going through a period of, of stress? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, the book is about what we as individuals can do in our everyday lives right now. There are so many upstream problems that need to be addressed about to improve the global health, 
mental health epidemic that we are in right now. Um, well, we have a you know, pandemic going on as well. It, absolutely. And that has affected it. Um, and I could go into all kinds of statistics about how much worse mental health is now than it was three years ago. But it, 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 it's, it's a problem. And there's also a loneliness epidemic in this country that the current U.S. Surgeon General has said can reduce lifespan equal to 10 cigarettes a day. Um, just from being lonely. And that goes back to what I was talking about, about um, eating with other people and the importance of that. But we also need, need to make sure that we remember that it's not just take three walnuts and you'll feel better in the morning um, or eat these berries every day and you'll be fine. You know, you'll feel better. Um, it, mental health, emotional well-being is, as you said, really complicated. And there are a lot of things going on in everyone's lives um, that, you know, my father passed away a month ago. And, um, you know, I wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to eat these blueberries and feel better. You have to go through the process of grieving, which I will be going through for a while. It doesn't get rid of your emotions. It helps you to process those emotions. And um, I think that's that's really critical in today's world. I've been speaking with Mary Beth Albright of the Washington Post about her new book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being, published by Countryman Press. I'm sorry we've run out of time. There's so much more to talk about, but it's been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, Leonard, I've really appreciated it. Thanks for your trust, and thank you for to your audience for taking the time to listen. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you would like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number to WBAI.org. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, if, if for anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being by Mary Beth Albright. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month. If you do, that will help us to plan for the future. But either way, it's important because BAI doesn't take foundation grants. We don't. Uh, we rely 100% on listener donations. And uh, we're the only radio station in the New York dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Your, your uh, support is tax-deductible. Uh, we're off tomorrow. But we hope that you can join us again on Friday when our favorite industrial hygienist, Monona Russell, will be here to discuss the latest health issues and take your calls. We'll see you then. 